It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, Now, up to to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a 1990 World Series champion. He's a good buddy of mine, and we were teammates in Cincinnati. We've known each other for a long time. Hit 307 times. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Hal Morris. Halbert, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. Everybody wants to know. Brett Boone, young Brett Boone, what was I like as a teammate? I don't know if uh, anybody wants to know. A, a young know. Brett Boone was a very <laughs> colorful player. Um, uh, very confident player, for, for, for sure. Um, very aggressive player. Um, but, uh, you know, many highlights, but but I always enjoyed your opening day batting practice. That, uh, <laughs> you know, um, where you're hitting in the cage with boots on and not a whole, a whole lot else. Um, so, uh, you know, like I said, uh, uh, great defender. A phenomenal second baseman, and uh, you know you should have to play every day. You played, you played in a lot of ball games. You know what? You know what's fun, and I think you've you've been kind of slighted from a defensive standpoint. You know, talk about how Morris and you and I I talked about at the top you hit three hundred seven times, but unorthodox. But as far as defenders, I got a I got a chance in my career to play with a lot of really good first basemen, Johnny Olerud, and uh, and and I always say I'll tell you what, Hal Morris. I played with Hal Morris. He's as good as anybody out there. But I never thought you ever got your due for that. Did you feel that way? Because I know Johnny was unbelievable, but so were you, and it was kind of the same. I knew I threw it over there. I didn't worry about it. If I was at first, I don't have to worry about it. I just have to get it to him somewhere in that vicinity, and he'd take care of it. But uh, I always felt you didn't get your just due uh, from a defensive standpoint. Well, you know, uh, I, I think there were guys who were better than me laterally, you know, in their, their range. Uh, but around the base, I, I think I was pretty good. And, and it, it's still a hard thing to measure, you know. I have very long arms. And so I thought my right. wingspan around the base was good. And it's something that you don't really, uh, you don't hear it discussed, but the range on the bag itself, you know, uh, where I could stretch and, and, and hold on to the base. So I was a pretty big target over there. So I think, I think, you know, uh, on the base, I, I, I think I was, was pretty good. You know, like I said, my lateral mobility could have been better. Um, but, uh, Try, try to catch what you guys threw over there. <laughs> you really can't. There's not a dead point to judge defense. What is a great first baseman? It's You know where it, where it comes from is it comes from your teammates, and it comes from opponents that you play against. Yeah, and, you know, and, and, and there really aren't any measures about picking balls over there. You don't, you, you don't see that. Um, but you know when you make a bad throw when someone picks you up like very memorable you know we the when, when we were in the playoffs in in uh 90 we we're playing the pirates i threw a ball that's that got away from me uh to second and i said oh my god this thing's in left field lark somehow you know playing with lark he 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 he, he jumps out there he catches the ball and comes back we turn a double play I, i'm still amazed that he did that i threw this ball and i thought for sure this thing's in left field 
but he picked me up and, and, and no one had any idea, you know? Yeah. It's, and it's all about trust. And you mentioned Lark. Uh, we had a unbelievable tandem for five years in Cincinnati and you're right. It's the trust. It's man. I make a bad throw. My partner's going to make it look like a good throw and vice versa. And it enables you to kind of be yourself and, and take chances and take risks because you know, on the other end, they got you. It was the same thing with you at first base. And, and I think that what, that's what makes a great infield. You know, you don't talk about the first base, but it's always the shortstop and the second baseman and their great middle infield and the third base. But first base, as I, as I got older and as I watched, first basemen's were crucial because it sets the rest of us at ease. Like, I know with, with Hal over at first base, I can just, if I get it in the area, I don't have to be perfect. The guys that are that you struggle with are the guys that you have to be perfect with because then you find how imperfect we actually are as defenders. But the peace of mind of having someone over there you trust, it, it's really a big thing, and it's not talked about that much in the game. Well, it's interesting. I, you know, I hadn't thought about that, about you going to Barry over there at second, but, you know, you going to your left, you were more aggressive than anyone I've ever seen play the game in terms of balls that that mo- 95% of the second baseman out there would just come to, to first with. You would you would turn and wheel and, and go to second, force them or try to start at the front end of a double play, you know. Um, and with again, Barry, he was just like a cat over there. What what he could what he could do around that base too. Yeah, and it's it's something I, I could I could be aggressive like that. Not always in my career could I do that. I played with shortstops that I didn't trust. So I, I maybe had to make the decision, I'm going to go to first here. I can't make this unbelievable play. But with Barry, I trusted him so much, and I remember he used to ask me, Booney, where do you want the ball? I said, Barry, I don't care where you throw me the ball. Just get me the ball so I got time to, to work with it. As long as I have that ball early, I, I can do whatever I need to do. You know, this is back before the rule change where you have to slide straight in. These were right. guys are trying to knock me into left field. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. And the, and the dynamics of defense and, and the mental side that, like I said, I don't think it's touched on too much. For years and years, Hal, uh, we've been buddies. I've called it from day one. I got traded from the Seattle Mariners to the Cincinnati Reds after the 93 season. And I remember – to this day, you were one of the first guys that greeted me. We were at some press conference downtown Cincinnati. And from the get-go, I would just, you know, I'd call you up in the off-season to work out. Snake, where, what time you want to hit today? And I would say, Snake. And to this day, I'll call you Snake on occasion. I've never thought about it. Where the hell did we come up with Snake? Who named you Snake? You, you know what, Brett? In, in this might sound unbelievable. I honestly don't know, you know, um, <laughs> I, I have no idea where that really came from, but, but when I, I, I think, uh, when I was with the Yankees in the minor leagues, uh, I think Turner Ward might've, might've, might've uh, called me snake for, cause he said my hands moved like a, a rattlesnake or something, uh, but, but I don't I honestly don't know. And I, and I don't know how that followed me over to Cincinnati either, you know, but, but it, but it did, and, and uh, I was laughing because Eric Davis sent me a note a couple weeks ago. He said, "Hey, Snake," and it's 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 uh, no one else really called me that aside from from the guys that, that I played with. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking about getting ready to do this podcast. I'm thinking, Snake. You know, I call it. There's two snakes in my life. There's Hal Morris and uh, my son Jake. Well, we know where Jake gets Jake the snake. You know, goofy a goofy name that you just play on words, but I'm like, I still call Halbert snake once in a while. And, and uh, I don't even know why I call him that. And I was thinking about it, it had to be something somebody kind of gave to you because of the way you hit kind of, you know, I don't know, snake in the grass, whatever it may be. Okay. We're going to jump around a little bit here, but I want to go to, uh, you know, this is before we even met 1990 world series. Unbelievable. I, that's the year I signed. But I remember it vividly watching that big underdog, Cincinnati Reds. You end up sweeping the Oakland A's. You go through a tough series with Pittsburgh. <clears throat> you end up winning that four to two. Uh, you had a big series, I think, in Pittsburgh, hit over 400. Um, but that Oakland series, there's a lot of stuff going on. And with that team, and I, and I think when you think back to the early 90s, 
uh, the Oakland A's were heralded. You know, they were the Bash brothers and they had those great teams. They went to the World Series three times, only won one. But you guys, that 1990 Reds team, it's not talked about like the Oakland A's of that of that generation. And you came in, big underdog, and swept them four straight. Just take me through that season and why that Cincinnati Reds team was so special. Well, I, I was traded to Cincinnati uh, in December of 89. What had happened, Pete Rose had been banished from baseball. He got, he got kicked out. And the Reds uh, had gone and, and, and they hired Bob Quinn as general manager. And then Bob hired Lou Pinella to come manage the team. Um, so there was kind of a re- overhaul in the organization. And uh, I had w- was with the Yankees. And uh, I, had, I had worked with Lou coming up through the system. He had worked with me on my hitting. He was kind of my mentor over there. Um, so I was blocked in New York because Don Matting was there. And I was not going to supplant him. You know, he was the best player in the American League, or one of the best. Um, so anyway, I got traded to the Reds. Um, and I honestly didn't know a lot about the, about the Reds or the National League. Uh, what I did know is, is that, uh, Chris Sable and Barry Larkin were there, were there and I had played at Michigan. So, so, uh, you know, I, I played with Barry for two years at U of M. So it was great. I knew a couple guys were there, but I didn't know a great deal about that team. Um, so we got on the spring training, um, Lou gathered us all together and, uh, th- this, you know, back then there were just the, 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 uh, the East and the West in both leagues. And he called us together, and uh, these they had come in second place a couple times. I think the prior three years, they it, it, you know they they were a competitive team. Um, but but he said, hey, listen, fellas, um, you know Pete's done a great job here. I thought that was that was smart of Lou. You know he 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 uh, acknowledged P Rose, kind of the 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 elephant in the room. Um, acknowledges you know Pete's done a great job. I got a ton of respect for Pete. He said, but but. Uh, you know, this is a new year and, you know, you've had success over here, but you haven't been able to get it across the finish line. He said, but you know what? I look around this room and I think there's enough talent to win and, and we're going to win. You know, he said, we are going to win this division and we're going to give some of the problem in the playoffs. Um, and we had um, you look at that team. Um, we had a great defensive team, Brett, uh, you know, Lark, it's short. Uh, Chris Sable was a, was an outstanding third baseman. Um, Paul O'Neill and right, Eric Davis and center. Um, Mario Duncan, Ronnie Oster. We had a very good defensive team. Um, we had um, power a power bullpen. You know the nasty boys, Rob Rob Dibble, Randy Myers, and Norm Charlton. Are when people think about that team, they often think about those three. But then we also had pretty darn good starting pitching, too. Jose Rijo was a very unheralded, underappreciated pitcher, but had the best slider in the in the uh, National League, or one of the best sliders. Um, Danny Jackson, Jack Armstrong had a good year. Um, so anyhow, we, we got off to a good start. We, we started the year 9-0, and and we got out in front, and uh, we just stayed out, and, and we held on to our lead throughout the course of the year. Um we got in the playoffs um, in, in, against the Pirates, and Pittsburgh had a good team. Bonds, Bonilla, Van Slyke, uh, Jeff King, Jay Bell. They had a, another team with very good defense, you know, kind of traditional uh, National League teams with with good starting pitching, too. Dr- Doug Drabeck had had a good year. And we played a tight series against Pittsburgh, as I recall, there, no game, uh, there was never a, 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 a larger than a three-run lead. It was the first time this had happened, like in 70 years, that that, that playoff series was so tight. Um, but we we squeaked through that, and uh, the A's had swept the the uh, Red Sox. So they, they were kind of waiting while we're still playing our series. Um, and I don't think in baseball that's always a good thing. You know, I think, you know, you take a couple of days off, your rhythm at the plate, your rhythm on the mound starts to get affected. So uh, we we uh, wrap up our series, and then we're going to play them in, in, in Cincinnati game one. And I'll never forget um, our advanced scouts, a guy named Jimmy Stewart. Uh, Jimmy walks in, and we're, we're sitting in our food room getting ready to, to take batting practice. 
and and he walks in. We're all in there, and he said, he said, fellas, I just got off the phone with Mel Didier. Mel Didier was the was the Dodgers. He was kind of their super scout. And he said, he said, guys, I just talked to Mel, and he, he said, listen, you he, he, you can beat these guys with power right-handed pitching. You could you could beat them with you got power arms. And and and, and you know, in in, in 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 about that time, Lou walks in there, and Lou is hearing Jimmy, you know, uh, you know, recount his conversation with Mel Didier, and Lou says, guess what, guys. We got we got those arms, and we're going to beat these guys. And then Tony Perez walks in right behind him, and I'll never forget because I was a rookie, and I'm scared. You know, I'm, I'm I'm this is kind of a daunting experience at this point. And, and anyhow, and Doggy says, "Yeah, yeah, we're going to win, fellas." And they, they they meant it, you know. Dog Lou and Tony, I could see in their faces that they really believed that we could win. And I thought, oh, well, maybe we can win. So we, we, we get in the first game. Eric Davis hits a home run off Dave Stewart early in the game. And, and Riho was lights out in the first game. And our bullpen was – it was the craziest thing, Brett. I, you know, I thought this was just just uh, normal, you know, typical that I'm like, wow, if we if we got a one-run lead in the in the sixth inning, we're going to win this game, you know. Uh, and, and I just said, oh, that's kind of the way, you know, when, you're, when your bullpen sets up the way, our, uh, way ours did – this is, you know, run of the, you know, the way you manage games. It was the first and last time in my career where that was the case, where we just, you know, if we had any kind of lead, the game was over because the bullpen was phenomenal. But you look at their work in the in the the, the playoff, the, the the national championship in the World Series, and they were lights out the whole time. So, so, and you know, I think that the fact that Oakland, they 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 had been sitting on the sideline for a few days. We were up. We were up two games to nothing before they knew what hit them. And then we went out and we had a big game in game three. We swung the bats well, saves hit a couple home runs, um, you know, and then and then we're up three nothing. And um, game four, we had some injuries. Eric got hurt diving for a ball. Dave Stewart hit Billy Hatcher. So we lost those guys. So, so I was getting a little antsy in that fourth game, but but we were able to, again, scratch a lead, scratch a run across late in the game. And we, 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 uh, you know, uh, squeaked that fourth game out. But I think the fact that Oakland had to wait, that they, they, they were a little bit stale, I think that was really kind of the difference in, the, in, the, in that whole series. You know what's interesting about that? I've had a few people on the podcast recently, we've talked about that, uh, that momentum going into the postseason, especially in today's game. Like you, like you mentioned, back then it was one series and then you go to the World Series. It's a lot different now. It's a tournament almost now. You got to go. It's four rounds for you to win the World Series in today's game. Much easier to get to the postseason, but tougher once you're there. Whereas in the past, uh, much tougher. That 162 game schedule became uh, much more important to get that playoff slot. Um, but I've talked to a couple guys, a couple guys that have won World Series recently. And they and they mentioned just that. You know, I talked to Timmy Salmon with the Angels and the O2 Angels. And he said, Booney, we were grinding the whole month of September. It's like we were in the playoffs just to get to the playoffs. And he said, then we got to the playoffs and, and we felt like our opponent didn't have a chance because we were playing at a, a different le- level adrenaline wise because we've been playing playoff games just to get that wild card spot. And he said, we kind of breezed through the post, hey, not breeze, but we were ready and they weren't ready. They were on up to our level because they were just kind of waiting for us to get there. And he said, I felt like it was a huge advantage for us. I look at a year ago, the Dodgers, that great Dodger team, won 111 games. And all of a sudden, San Diego's, they're clawing to get in the postseason. They get there. They beat the great Dodgers, who were probably the best team in baseball last year. That's why That's why I think the game of baseball is the best game in the world, because you never know. The Dodgers last year, on paper, what they did the regular season, obviously the, the, the best team in baseball. My team in 2001, we won 116 games. We're the obvious best team in baseball. Doesn't always work out for you because of that that postseason uh, schedule. I mean, we were we didn't have anybody, you know, in my record or or my experience that oh one team. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, there was nobody even close to us once we got through the month of May. I mean, it was just rearview mirror the whole year, and kind of on cruise control, and and we got bit by it. I remember 
on that bus ride home from Yankee Stadium after getting beat by the Yankees, thinking this didn't really just happen, right? We were supposed to win the whole thing. Nobody wins 116 and gets bumped from the postseason, but it happens. You sweep them. We, I, I've had Boogie on the program, and for those who listen to the Boone podcast, Boogie, we call him, is uh, Eric Davis. He talked about that injury. I mean, he was kind of your guy. He was your cog. He was the cog in the wheel. He was the Reggie Jackson of, of uh, at that point of the Cincinnati Reds. He goes down. He goes to the hospital. What's what's that team thinking? Or was it, no, we, we're up 3-0 now. It's going to be 4-0. I think that the, the A's had such a powerful team that I was concerned when when Eric went down and then when when uh, Billy Hatcher went down, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you know, we, we do not want to give these guys a, a crack of daylight because if we lose this game, you know, we're, 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 we we got a big problem. We're, we're, we're two men down, you know, because Billy Billy Hatcher had set a World Series record where he tied Babe Ruth. I think he got one eight for eight to start the series. So, so you know, and, and Eric was – his presence was so significant to us. You know, I, I – um, it was funny. Someone the other day I – have, I have a photo of our starting lineup uh, before game one. Um, before we started the game on my wall, and we someone was asking me about it the other day, and I pointed to Eric and Barry, and I, I, I was laughing. I said, you see, my, my heart's racing about 150 beats a minute right there. I said, you can't tell it, but it was. But not these two right here, you know, pointing to Eric and, and, and Barry. I said, the craziest thing, you know, and I was scouting, you'd look at players – and you think about, you know, the, the game speeds up on them when they get into big situations at times. They, they, they can't calm themselves down. I always felt like Barry and Eric in those big games, their heart rate actually decreased. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. But but losing Eric in that game, uh, it was it was very uh, alarming. You know, I, I was just on pins and needles hoping that we could get that fourth game, you know, uh, closed out because I, I was very concerned about anything after that. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Cincinnati, we played together for for several years. We had some really good teams, 94, 95. 94 got disrupted by the strike, but we were kind of wire to wire leading our division. Uh, 95, we got bumped by a pretty darn good Atlanta Braves team. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they went on to win it all. We got through the Dodgers. But I, I really enjoyed my time in Cincinnati. And there's so much history there. But I never got to go through what you got through. You know, was winning the World Series having a parade downtown Cincinnati. What was that like? Uh, it was, it was a, uh, uh, you know, it was a thrill of a lifetime, really. Um, uh, you know, Cincinnati is, is a smaller town. Um, so uh, they, uh, they, they really follow the, the Reds. Um, it's, it's, it's a, a real, it's part of the fabric of that area that, you know, the community, Um so when the Reds are competitive, the, 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 you feel more energy in that town, you know, and, and um, uh, especially back then, it, you go anywhere and the, the, the folks would have WLW on, they're listening to Joe and Marty, you know, and, and uh, so it was, uh, it, was, it was a big thrill um, and, and to, uh, to do it with Sabo and Larkin and, and, uh, and that whole group of guys you know, uh, uh, it's something you never forget. You know, I think in 94, Brett, I think we, I think we had a team that could have made a run at the world series. You, you know, the, the strike was, that's, that's, 
you know, you, you look back at your career, you know, uh, when you when you get the, the gray hair that we have now and you reflect upon things, I, I you know, I wish we would have had a chance in 94. I, I think we were we were uh, good enough to, to, to play with anyone. We had that was speaking of uh, defense, our infield. That's I can't imagine a better defensive infield with Tony Fernandez playing third. Was that unbelievable when Tony just went to third and, and he didn't want to go? Because he was this star shortstop from Toronto. But yeah. once he did commit to it, you're right. He's as good as anyone I ever played with. And I played with some really good third basemen. Oh, I mean, you, you take a gold glove shortstop, move more to third. The plays he would make over there, it was, it was, that was the, um, uh, it was a joy to watch you guys play that year. I mean, our defense was extraordinary on the infield. I mean, I, like I said, you, you, you show me a better infield than I, and, and, uh, you know, I'd be surprised. But like I said, that, that I think in 94, I think we had a chance to to to, uh, to do some damage in the playoffs. But uh, we will never know. We will never know. All right. I want to talk about some of the some of the characters from that team. <laughs> you mentioned Lark, uh, you know, to this day, probably the best athlete I ever played with. It seemed like he could do it all. We, me and you would play. Well, you were pretty good, too. But in the offseason, we'd play hoops, even though we weren't supposed to. And I'd watch you and Lark and I'm like. This is ridiculous, and, and I remember you telling me, Booney, he could probably play Division One basketball right now, and I believe that after watching him, he just had, he was he was kind of freaky from an athletic standpoint. Uh, you mentioned Eric Davis. You know, as I get older and and as I went on through my career, I never really had an appreciation. You know, for the oh thirty thirty. Well, I, I didn't steal a lot of bases, so I never thought about the base stealing side of it. But I I had a year where I stole like 16 or 18 bags, I had a newfound respect for those guys that hit home runs and steal bases. It's not easy to do. It takes a lot out of you, especially the guys that, you know, the guys that went 40, 40. I looked at, I looked at Eric Davis's numbers. I think he had a 162 game span where he went like 39, 80, something ridiculous. And, and, uh, you talk about those two. I think Lark learned a lot from Eric. He was kind of Eric was kind of Lark's mentor. But talk about guys that that could steal a base, true base stealers, guys that uh, when everybody in the park knew they were going in, still run right in your face. Ricky Henderson being the epitome of that. But they were those type of players. Talk about Lark and Boogie a little bit. Well, yeah, they were. If you go back, because you know when I was. Uh, when I was working in the in the Angels front office, I, we, we'd be in your office all day. So you just sit there and and uh, you had some time on your hands. I used to go back and like to look at everyone's at the numbers, you know, just throughout the history of baseball. Um, and you look at Eric, you look at his stolen base percentages. It's unbelievable. Yeah. You know, and and like you said, Brett, he was he was he was everyone knew that he was running. You know, same thing with Lark. I I maintain a the guys I was able to watch pretty closely, Barry and Eric could, could steal a base um, as well as anyone. I, I think probably Ricky might be in another league, you know, um, but, but, but everyone knew they were stealing, you know, and, and the, the, the situation dictated that, that we needed to, 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 to run and they would st- still steal bases. You know, it's one thing I played with a couple of guys later in my career that stole a lot of bases, but they were kind of hollow. They were empty. Yep. You know, we, we were up or down four or five runs and they're out there running, stealing, uh, stealing second, stealing third. But those guys, they would never do that. They were still in bags when, when they needed to. And if you look, if you look at Eric, uh, I don't know if it's 86 or 87, he, he was like, he had 27 home runs and stole 80 bases or something. It was, it's, he, it was, it was insane. The number, you know, what, what he did and saves was another one. Look at, look at, look at saves when he won that rookie of the year, he stole a ton of bases, you know, he was saved is very athletic. And I'll tell you the other guy, Brett, you talk about athleticism, Paul O'Neill is a hell of an athlete. Um, Paul uh, was, uh, he, he was a very good tennis player. He beat most of the teaching pros in Cincinnati, uh, but also a great basketball player. I thought Paul could have played in the NBA. I saw him play basketball. I'm like, wow, because he's six, five, he could shoot. And, and just watching him, I was like, wow, he, he is a heck of an athlete. So, again, there were there was athleticism on that team uh, that, that uh, you know, you might not appreciate. Now, Lark, 
Uh, you know, Lark was an All-American uh, safety, I believe, coming out of Moeller. I think Lark would have been a Hall of Fame uh, safety or DB in the, in the uh, NFL. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, freaky athlete. Paul O'Neill, we've had him on the show. Spuds, for those of you listening, nickname for, for Chris Sabo. Okay, I got to play with Sabo. I played against Paulie a lot. But I got to play with Sabo. He came back. He, he wasn't in his role that he was in the 90 when he was one of the World Series. He was in more of a platoon role, extra player. But I got a little bit of Chris Sabo. And, and one of, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of these guys on the list, we could say from those 90s Reds teams, when they were born, they break, you, you broke the mold. There's nobody like them. Sabo's one of them. Uh, Paul O'Neill, the stories I hear about when they were roommates. He's uh, another. Lou Pinella, we both played for. That's a for sure. There's there's only one Lou Pinella. But talk to me. Give me a give me a Sabo O'Neill story because I didn't get to see it when they when they were uh, when they were roommates and and <laughs> I just need a story because when you guys tell it, I just laugh because I know I know Chris so well and I can hear him doing that. But I I didn't know Paulie as well. Well, so so. Uh, Chris and uh, Paul's locker were down at the other end of the lockers. He walked in the training room. There were two lockers down there, and the, and they it was it was Chris on the right, Paul on the left, and they would sit down there and they would they would be chirping all day, talking to each other, you know, in their own little, little language. And you'd walk by there, and I, I would just die laughing. Like I, I walked by one day and. Paul was in a slump, and he and he and he's sitting there talking. He said he, he comes. He said he call uh, Saves Spuds. He said Spuds, I stink. And 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 Saves looked right back. He said, "You know what, Paul? You're right. You stink. You know." And so they're these two are down there talking. You know, going at it the whole day. But you know, Paul would be up there hitting the lefties and 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 at the plate, and 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 Saves just yelling at him. Put your nose in there, you know. Stick your nose in there, Paul. Let's go. Just screaming stuff at him. <laughs> it, was, um, it was it was hilarious, you know. The, the, those two, uh, and they they were roommates. They, they 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 roomed together on the road too. So this they carry on like this all day long, you know, and and, and at night. Talked about the big bullpens, and and today, two thousand twenty-three, clubs put a lot of their finances in the bullpens. They they bring you up as a specialist in the bullpen. That wasn't the case uh, in the history of baseball. You know, talking to a lot of uh, older 70s, 80s pitchers, they said, Brett, when I was in the bullpen, that was like a demotion. That was scrub time. I was just, I wasn't good enough to start, and that's why I was in the bullpen. Today's game isn't like that. But you mentioned that special bullpen, and it was uh, Myers, Norm Charlton, and Rob Dibble. That was kind of the first power bullpen that I remember having. We had a little bit of it in, in Seattle. Uh, in the early 2000s, they started to have a little bit of a setup guy, lefty, righty, power closer. But I think yours is, is uh, it was the first on record of being, like you said, it became a five, six inning game. You got to the six with a lead. Uh, that game was over. I remember how talking to you about Rob, because I played with Dibble for one year, my first year over there, but he was hurt mm -hmm. and, and he wasn't able to get on the field. I remember you telling me, because because as a kid watching Rob Dibble pitch, you know, in high school and college, I thought that's one man I never want to step in the box again. I remember you saying something to me like, Booney, it's the most dominating pitcher I've ever seen for a short term. Uh, talk about those three guys and their roles in that bullpen. I don't. I, again, I, I can't recall before either where you had kind of that three-headed monster down in a bullpen. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, maybe, maybe uh, th there were other uh, bullpens that I'm not aware of, um, but um, they were just uh, dominant, and um, they, they uh, were were you know three uh, very unusual unusual personalities, you know, to to to, to say the least. Um, uh, Rob, you know, I was, I was at fantasy camp a couple years ago with Rob and we're sitting there having dinner and he, and he, he said, you know what, I've been thinking about my career, you know, and, and if I had one thing to do over again, and I'm thinking, you know, he's here, he is, you know, 20 years post playing, 
going to give me something kind of deep and pensive and reflective. He said, I would have drilled more guys. You know, he said, <laughs> he said I should have drilled more. And I started laughing. I said, oh, my God, he was crazy. Rob was crazy. <laughs> He threw he threw a hundred on the, the the way that they captured the velo today had to be 103 104 I, I I don't know I don't know what um, he had he had a devastating slider um, Rob the way the Lou would use Rob when, when we got into a jam and we needed we needed got we we had guys you know like there was there was some traffic out there in the base paths we needed strikeouts that's when he would use Rob you know and, and he would he come in and punch a couple of guys out. Um, uh, I, I remember where we were playing in Atlanta one night and he's facing Tommy Gregg and, and Brett, he was throwing so hard. I, I'll never forget. It's the only time in my entire career, the, the ball was getting about halfway to the plate and it was exploding. It was kind of like, you know, in star Wars when they jumped the warp speed yeah. and, you know, and, and I'm watching this and I'm like, and I, I remember thinking to myself, I said, dibs, just don't hit them. I think you, you'll kill him. He was throwing so hard. It's the damnest thing I've ever seen. Um, but, but Randy typically closed uh, Randy was he he was a, a, a he had phenomenal control. He threw uh, you know mid to upper nineties, you know, and um, you know back when we played, as you know, the the uh, if you could establish that you could work on the outer two or three inches of a, of a of the plate, the umpires would open up the zone for you. So Randy he would come in there and he would start painting, and then they would give him they would give him this much off the the corner of the plate. He would just live out there. Um, uh, and Norm, upper 90s with a devastating split finger pitch, uh, threw a spitter a lot. I mean, his uh, um, he could th- he could Norm was also a starter. He could give multiple innings for you, just just depending upon the the way the the lineup set up. You know, Lou would use he would lo- use those three guys accordingly. But typically, um, Randy closed, and then those are two guys. He he used Norm for uh, you know inning and inning a third, but. Uh, the, the the stuff was just overwhelming for the three of them. And they were all kind of out of their mind too. So everyone in the league was kind of, was, was aware of these guys, especially Norman Rob, that they were kind of dangerous. Like you gotta, you know, so it's in the back of your mind that these guys might be throwing at you, you know? So um, it doesn't really exist in the game anymore, but it sure did right at that time. Yeah. And you're right. They were crazy, crazy, crazy in a good way, crazy. in a. am glad they're on my team way. You know, I, I got a chance with with Dibs just a year, but just to get a glimpse of his personality. I played with Norman in Seattle, one of my favorite guys and, and uh, got a chance to play with Randy and, and he was hurt in San Diego. But I got a little bit of a an idea of what he was like. Um. People ask me this all the time when it comes to my Cincinnati days. You know, there's the typical questions, but but I still laugh about it. Hey, Booney, what was it like playing for Marge Shot? And I said, you know, I think about it all the time. And I said, you know, it was the cheapest owner I've ever played for. I had to put up with uh, dog hair in my back pocket. Remember, I'm a rookie. I'm not. I'm getting arbitration here. This is the mm-hmm. owner of the team. So. Part of me is thinking, well, I kind of got to play pl- play her game and let her put the hair in my pocket. Now, they put the hair in my pocket, I get a couple hits. You know, Snake, like anybody, we keep that hair in our pocket for the next day. We don't, we don't question why we got two hits. We just know the hair was in our back pocket. But I remember Bernie Stowe. Uh, we lost Bernie Stowe recently, the, the legendary uh, clubhouse man for, for, the, uh, for the Cincinnati Reds. I remember he'd be like, well, Booney, you need some, you need some new bats. I said, yeah, Bernie. And this is my first year over there. And he says, well, you know, I hate to say it, but Marge likes to, we like to collect the bats that you broke. And my first thought was, you know, I was a young player, but I'm thinking, isn't this the big leagues? You know, I'm not <laughs> used to having these questions in the big leagues. And he's like, yeah, that's just the way that now we'd fudge it a little bit. Bernie would help me get my new dozen bats. You know, I kind of need the bats. You know, I play every day. Uh, But I remember that. I remember just the the nickel and diming. I remember us going on on coach flights to the West Coast, you know, where we didn't have a charter. And, And at that time, that was unheard of. Every major sports franchise in the world, we charter everywhere. But but Marge would save a little money. Uh, two flights a year, and, and it seemed like we were going out to play the L.A. Dodgers. Uh, 
imagine being on a flight. I always thought about it. I said, this isn't fair for us because we'd, we'd board the plane in Cincinnati and all the fans are around. We're sitting around in the, in the lobby. But then I thought, once we get on the plane, this isn't fair for them either to have to put up with us. You know, we'd have one section of the plane and then the general public that bought a ticket were in the other half. So it was kind of a uh, not fair for either, but that's the way Marge was. I remember going to her her party or once a year party and, and Barry used to tell me, Booney, if you want a multi-year contract one day, you better get up on that elephant. <laughs> and sure enough, I had my ass up on that elephant. <laughs> um Anything stand out for you? Just just one Marge shot story. Oh boy! Uh, I heard about the meetings where the pitchers trying. I'm trying. Who's gonna win? That was Sabes. Oh, that was Sabo. That was that was supposedly that was before I got there. You went when 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 uh, they used to tell that story. They they said they're up there in in Marge's office and and uh, you know they were in a little bit of a slump and 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 she says, boys, you know, you know, uh, should we say a prayer? And, and, and saves, you know, you know, sits up and says, Marge, he said, the hitters praying, the pitchers probably think God could, could care less who, who win this game. <laughs> you know, yeah. said, okay, we'll, we'll forget about that then. Um, <laughs> In the shag carpet office that she had. Oh, oh my, oh my goodness. Wearing, Marge wearing your penny loafers, right? Um, I, well, I, I don't. I'll tell you what, there, 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 so many, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I think, I don't think Marge was, a, was, uh, I think Marge, uh, probably needed someone around her to, to kind of shepherd her, you know, and, and keep her out of trouble. And inherently, I don't think she was a, a, a bad person, but, I, you know, I, I remember I'm, I'm sitting in, this had to be 95, uh, 20 year reunion for the, for the big red machine. They're having a luncheon and Marge invites me to come and she's over there with Bev Carpenter. If you remember Bev, yeah. her, 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 her friend from Indian Hill up there and we're, we're sitting there and uh, I reach down to get a drink of my water and I pick it up and it's, it's pure like Wolf Schmidt vodka, you know, <laughs> midday. Oh, it was noon. And I, and I look at Marge, I'm like, Marge, I'm like, I said, Marge, I got to play tonight. You know, you got to keep, you got to keep your drink over there. You know, she, she had like grabbed my water, I think, and swapped my water for her, for her vodka, you know? Um, but, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, you know, you, 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 you witness, you know, when she, she, she would like my rookie year, she would come down and she would grab my hair because I had really long hair. And she said, "You got, you got to cut that. You got to cut that." And I look over. I'm kind of pissed. I look over at Lou, and Lou would just go like this, just a little bit, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, uh, but, but uh, you, you know, it, it's she. She was she was quite the character for sure. Al, I got a funny one, and we'll move on. But <laughs> this is when I first came over, and you know, you kind of when the owners down there talking to you, you kind of just put up with it, and you got to stay in the conversation. It's the owner of the team. And I remember I just, it might've been at that press conference uh, when I got traded, flew into Cincinnati. And I remember having my first interaction with her and she says, you know, son or whatever she was calling me, young man. Uh, she goes, uh, where are you thinking about living? And I said, well, Marge, I said, I don't know yet. I said, I'm probably going to get it. You know, I'm 23 years old. I said, I'm probably going to get an apartment somewhere. What do you suggest? I said, Marge, where do you live? <laughs> she goes, she goes, oh, honey, I live in Indian Hill. You can't afford it. <laughs> I just got, I just flew in. She just traded for me. She's like, oh, no, that's way above your budget. <laughs> and which at the time it definitely was. But that's what I remember. And that still to this day makes me laugh because she was a piece of work. Oh, yeah, she was. Uh, you retired after 2000. Interesting. In 2012 to 2016, and I remember seeing this, you pop up. You, you become the director of scouting for the California Angels. Uh, I know in between there, you went and got your, your master's, I think, at Stanford. What got you back into the game, and and why did you go that route? Why was it the scouting route? Did did you have something that interests you, or it just kind of fill me in? Was this something you you always wanted to do when you were done playing, or it just came up? So so yeah. So when I retired, 
um, I had promised my mom I was going to go back and, and uh, finish my my undergrad, you know, because I'd left school early, like we all, you know, most of us did. Um, and I, I, I finished up my, my, my undergrad degree and, and, you know, uh, I guess I was retired at that point, you know, and after playing golf for a couple months, you know, I, I said, man, I need, I, I, I'm, I'm a bad golfer and that hasn't changed. Um, I need to do something else. So I decided I was going to go to business school. So I went, went to, went to business school out of Stanford and, uh, was, uh, living in the Bay area after I was living in Palo Alto. Um, worked on a couple uh, 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 real estate ventures out there, um, but our the office for the for the for the for the company I was working for were, were, is across the street from the ballpark in San Francisco. And for about five years after I retired, I wasn't too interested in going to a game. I, I think I missed playing a lot, and it was it was hard for me to go sit in the in the in the ballpark and watch the games. But I started to get an interest. I went to a game when I said and I enjoyed it. So. Um, uh, when I was, uh, when I was drafted by the Yankees, I played with Bob gear for a few years and Bob and, uh, Billy Bean were close friends from San Diego. And I had gotten to know Billy, uh, when, when I was coming up in the, in the Yankee system, he was playing for the Tigers. So, so I had gotten to know Billy a little bit playing against him. Um, but, uh, I was I was just thinking about doing something in the game, so so I I called Billy up. He was over in Oakland. I said, "Hey, you mind if I, you know, uh, come over and have a you know cup of coffee? I'd like to to, to pick your brain." And went over and had had a cup of coffee with Billy in, in Farhan, who's now the the GM in San Francisco, and said, "Hey, I'm thinking about going in the game, getting back in the game. What do you suggest?" And Billy said, "Hell, I think you'd like scouting." He said, "I really think you'd enjoy that." So so uh, um, so Billy sent me to scout school. And uh, I went to scout school and then I was hired by the, 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 uh, the pirates after that. And I was doing amateur work, right? Doing area work. I said, listen, if, 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 if I'm going to learn this game, I got to kind of learn, I, I, I kind of have to stop, start here. Um, and, and that was a very, um, an enlightening period for me, you know, watching amateur players, young, you know, 16, 17 year old players and trying to think about what they were going to look like five years, six years down the road. Um, so I worked for them for two years. Then I got hired in, with Theo Epstein's last year in Boston to, to come do pro work in Boston. Allard Baird hired me. So I worked uh, I worked for Allard, but that's when Ben Charrington was there, uh, Mike Hayes and Amiel Sade, uh, you know, Theo, Jared Porter, all these guys that are that became GMs all over the place. That was a great experience. And then um, – I got a call one day and it was Jerry DePoto. Jerry had just been hired uh, in Anaheim as a GM and he brought me out and he interviewed me for their pro director's job. And uh, I ended up getting that job. So uh, I worked with uh, underneath Scott's service. Uh, Scott was the assistant GM and Jerry. And then also Matt Clintack was there. Justin Hollander is now the GM in Seattle. I worked with all those guys. Um, and then I worked when Jerry went up to Seattle, I worked for Billy Epler for a year. Um, but that's how I ended up scouting. And, you know, it was, I, I really enjoyed it. I learned a great deal about the game. You know, I, I felt like once I started scouting, I, I kind of took the blinders off that I had when I was playing. Now, I, I don't know if I could have played with all the information. I guess I picked up scouting. Um, you know, maybe I would, I, I would have just overanalyzed everything, but, but I, I, it, you know, it really a lot of lights turned on. I really enjoyed it. And I, and I enjoyed the guys in the Anaheim. I enjoyed getting the, 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 the whole, scouting community you know i got to know a ton of scouts and uh, it was a great deal of fun it's amazing i worked for the a's for two years in 14 and 15 i was a you know assistant to billy bean i'd go around in the minor leagues and you know i'd basically you know put on a uni six days a month and go to our double a affiliate or i'd go to our a ball affiliate and work with the middle infielders talk the game be in the dugout with them at night and just you know, talk situations. Uh, and I got a call and they said, we want you to go to the SEC regional to look at the players right before the draft. And the SEC is kind of the, kind of the top regional. Mm -hmm. And I went there and how, you know, me and my personality, I think, well, you just show me the, show me the players and I'll tell you what they're going to be. If they're going to oh. be big leaguers or not, you know, quick study. And I went there with Grady Fuson. And I remember watching players. Ah, he can't play. He's not good enough. He's not a big leaguer. And Grady would sit there and just kind of look at me like, 
and laugh a little bit. He goes, yeah, you're a quick steady, aren't you? He goes, and he started teaching me little nuances in the game. Other scouts uh, that I would sit there and talk to would teach me a little bit, but this is why we do this. This is why we do that. You know, Grady, I remember the first question he asked me was, tell me who that guy reminds you of. And, you know, as a layman, just a baseball player, I think, why does that matter? And he goes, because if he doesn't remind you of anybody, that's probably not a big leaguer you're looking at. And it made perfect sense. You know, my problem was I was trying to do it all in this one SEC tournament. And I found myself looking at other players. You know, the draft's in like two weeks. And Grady gave me a list. He said, I want you to look at this guy, this guy, this guy. You know, make sure they're they're, they're draft eligible. I found myself like my eyes drawing to like a freshman that really impressed me or a, or a sophomore. And I'd be raving about him up in the stands and Grady, he would look at me and go, Booney, that's great. I don't care. They can't be drafted in two weeks. Concentrate on the list that I, that I sent you, but it is, it was, it was a, it was a learning experience for me. And I got a little tutelage on, on how you actually scout. You know, my grandpa scouted for 40 years until the day he died when he retired. And, yeah. You know, as a player, as a grandkid, I didn't want to hear about his scouting. I always used to tell him he's wrong on this and he's wrong on that. But the actual art of scouting, the uh, you went to scouting school. I mean, that's kind of that's the epitome of it. But uh, it's definitely different than you think, uh, because as big league players and guys that played did this for a living, we do have a keen eye. We see things that maybe the average guy doesn't see. But at the same time, there is an art to scouting and there is a way to do it. And there's a reason that guys that do it 20, 30 years and are respected in the industry uh, really know the little things to look for. Yeah, it, I tell you what, it's a humbling experience. You know, when you when you go through and, and uh, you you evaluate weigh in on guys, it, it, you, you'll have a much better feel. But it's going to take five years, you know, uh, to see to see how your how your opinions you know, came to, came to fruition or, or not, you know, your project, your uh, predictions. Um, so uh, it's, it's definitely a different way to look at the game. Like I said, I wish there, the, in, in many regards, I wish I understood uh, uh, when I started playing what I do now, in some regards, I don't, because I think I might've been locked up, um, but I learned so much about the game uh, by, by during, during my time scouting, you know, it, it, it's, it's, uh, I, I had no idea how to, to really uh, evaluate players and, and break break what everyone's doing down, you know. So it was that was that was very very uh, constructive. Uh, move on to what you're doing now. Yeah, and uh, tell the audience what you're doing. You know, I'd set it up. How's in a very unique field now? Very interesting. Something we didn't have when when we were coming up as players. But it's it's a really intriguing concept, and I, I don't even want to do it uh, an injustice by trying to set you up. You you tell the audience what what you're doing right now in in the game in a sure, completely yes. so, completely different capacity. Completely different, yeah. So what what I do now, I work I work for a for a fund, and we acquire uh, equity interest in in professional athletes. In our first fund, we we. Uh, have baseball and football players in the first one. Our second fund, we have now have a few NBA players. So what we do, essentially, we, we, we go to players early in their career, typically when they're in the big leagues, and um, we will invest in them. We will, we will pay them for a percentage of their future earnings. So just like you would, you would, you would uh, have equity in a company, we have, we have interest in, Athletes. It's, it's an investment in human capital, you know, the, got, but they happen to be athletes. And uh, I, what I do, I do the qualitative assessments on the players. So I, I evaluate the players. Um, and that's how I ended up uh, when I, when I left the angels to go, to go uh, work at, at, at our fund at the time, it was just theoretical. We were thinking about doing this and, uh, so we went out and raised the fund, and we were actually uh, have, have, have done it. So that's what I do when we're thinking about um, talking to a player, or you know, trying to you know in, invest in them. I will scout them. I will do the evaluations on the guys. So it, does it come down to when it's when it's crunch time and you're making a deal? 
does it come down to data points or does this come down to no we we take assessments your your part of the company is is doing what you do is there like four entities that come together and you it you decide come upon a number what is fair what's going to work for you fiscally what's going to work for the player fiscally and that's how it's presented is there a negotiation that goes on between yeah i mean it's you it's, and the uh, player it's it's very similar to to, to how you, uh, a front office functions you know in a front office you have you have your quant team you've got your scouts you know you, you've got you've got the guys from the qualitative work and then you have the general manager and the and the assistant gm and the guys that are up there that are using all this information and trying to come to a decision about about who they want to sign to long term contracts who they want to trade for it's the exact same thing so we have a we have a quant team and then and then um I, you know, I, I, I handle the qualitative work and, and uh, the, the, my, my group of the, our baseball guys, we have, we have uh, three other guys um, two have played in the big leagues, Brennan Harris and Tuffy Gosowicz. And then Randy Newsom, uh, the, the fourth played in the minor leagues for a long time. So, so we, we, we give our feedback and, and, you know, uh, you do your best to get to know the guys, you know, as, as we know, um, that's such a, a big factor in how, and, 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 and in, in the, the the success of a player is, is their 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 makeup, their drive. Uh, you try to take all these in consideration when you're when you're uh, deciding what you can offer to 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 uh, to guys. And, and typically, there's there's not a great deal of negotiating because we you know we'd like to pay the guys as, as as much as we possibly can. We have you know we have our our fund and we need to deploy it. So um, we're gonna we're, we're always pretty fair in whatever we offer to the guys. And, it, and it's interesting too, young player coming up. I mean, it's this big league baseball, as you know, it's a tough, it's a tough deal, you know, for the, for the young players, maybe that takes a little bit of the burden, a little bit of the pressure to, to earn that, those big dollars. And you see those big dollars in the game today. Um, and if a, if a organization like yourself that you're involved with comes in and say, Hey, you know, X, X is, is my, is my player, Joe Schmo. Uh, you're a young player. We think you're, you've got a high ceiling. We think you're going to do well. We think you're going to make a lot of money in the game. We're willing to give you 3 million up front right now to kind of take that pressure off you to have to play good for the contract. Well, down the line, we're going to expect our cut of X, but it's kind of a win-win. And especially in today's game, if you're talking about amounts of money, two and $3 million, as opposed to what the players in today's game, even to be a average big league player, what they're going to make is ridiculous. It's tenfold uh, the money you're going to give them early, but it gives maybe certain players. And I think it would be very beneficial for certain players to have that peace of mind and have that financial stability when they're trying to make it, uh, you know, and make a name for themselves in, in the big leagues. Yeah, sure. You know, I think, I think when you have some financial security, you're, you're more relaxed at the plate on the mound and, Again, when you get to our age, Brett, you 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 look back and um, you, you realize that that you know in in careers in in, in in you know I always people ask me about the big leagues. I'm like, listen, it's it's aside for a handful of players, it's a knife fight every night. You know, You're, it is. I mean, and like when I think about my career, I don't think about you know hitting streaks, and I, I'm like, I I think about those one for 25s. I like, like I think about the game and I don't think like, man, I can go out and rake. So I think, well, I think about what a challenge it was. So I think anything that could, could, could give the guys peace of mind, uh, you know, some, some financial security. And, you know, uh, you know, like, like uh, I think Benjamin Franklin said, one today is worth two tomorrow. So you don't know what's going to go on tomorrow. And that's been our experience to date. You, everyone assumes they're going to stay healthy. They're going to have this linear progression in their career. And it just doesn't happen. You know, um, when you when you go back and look at it, there are many many players uh, who 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 you know they they uh, they, they don't they don't uh, follow the path that you might expect you know so and, and the other thing is the guys they can't really self insure so 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 uh, anyhow I I I I think that for all the players it's it's, it's worthwhile to take a to, to take a hard look at what we do you know um, uh, and. and so so far, like I said, I, I think we've seen very beneficial effects for the guys. Very cool. Hal Morris, I appreciate you coming on, man. It's good catching up with you. Uh, Great look, to talk to you. Buddy. I'll look you up when I come out to Chicago to see uh, 
to see the other snake. But uh, Very good. yeah, great career. 4,400 4, at bats, uh, 304 career. Not too many people can say, yep, I was a 300 hitter in the big leagues. I get pissed all the time, uh, however, uh, in today's game, they discount uh, the average. And I just think, man, it's hard to hit 300 in the big leagues. It's so hard to do it once or twice. For a career, I have a, a different level of respect for it because uh, unless you're down there doing it in the knife fight on a daily basis, you forget how hard it really is. But I appreciate you coming on. My All pleasure. you out there uh, listening to the Boom Podcast, subscribe, check us out. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>